Welcome to 8 with 8, a podcast from Ohio State Support Team 8, where we share what's on our minds and what's in the research from the field of education. When isn't literacy on our minds or in the research? It's been one of the most talked about aspects of education over the last few years due to a statewide focus on the science of reading, several grant opportunities, and now the dyslexia legislation going into effect next school year. So now, as we talk about ineffective teaching practices this season, we are thrilled to welcome Dr. Tim Shanahan to the podcast. Dr. Shanahan has been a partner with the Ohio Department of Education for the last several years as we've developed and implemented Ohio's plan to raise literacy achievement. He's presently a distinguished professor emeritus at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where he was the founding director of the UIC Center for Literacy. Previously, he was director of reading for all of Chicago public schools. He's author and editor of more than 200 publications on literacy education, and his research emphasizes the connections between reading and writing, literacy in the disciplines, and improvement of reading achievement. He was inducted into the Reading Hall of Fame in 2007, and he's a former first grade teacher, so he knows what he's talking about. Today, Dr. Shanahan talks with SST8 Sarah Egan Reeves and gives us a lot to think about in terms of how we design literacy instruction. Really, this is a masterclass on literacy from one of our favorite gurus. We can't wait for you to hear all that he has to share. This season of the podcast um, was loosely inspired by a recent published book by doctors Prasida and William Himmeley, and it's called Why Are We Still Doing That? And it's just a quick compilation. It's put together in a, in a very easily readable um, fashion, and it really, that's when why we wanted to um, share it with our audience. It sparked a lot of discussion with us here at, in the team, and right off the bat, uh, you are you are quoted because the first problematic practice they talk about is round robin reading, and and uh, you're quoted as saying studies have shown that much of the time devoted to round to round robin reading reading I'll say that ten times fast uh, is uh, wasted in terms of student learning. And I'm just wondering. I know this was a blog post of yours a while back, and I'm just have it, has it come back to you? Have you received any feedback about this recently? Oh, you know. It, Round robin reading is, is one that, uh, you know, I've been in this field now for more than 50 years, and I, I, I vividly remember the first course I ever took. And, you know, people were uh, speaking against round robin reading at the time, and I think they had been probably for generations <laughs> before. Um, and, and we probably will. I, you know, I got a lot of really positive responses, uh, a lot of, you know, reading specialists and and, you know, the reading coordinators at school districts and so on wrote in and said how glad they were that I wrote that. But my hunch is that in, in a lot of, of schools and, and, and classrooms that, in fact, round robin is dominating or, or some form of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I know teachers yeah. that will, you mentioned you, your background is middle school. I've had yep. middle school teachers say popcorn. that they would never use round robin they reading. popcorn reading. That's what, yeah, that was that's the thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. They do something like popcorn or, or no, we don't, we don't do that in our reading class. We do round robin in our science class right. or in our social studies One class. One paragraph at a time. Yep. And it, and <laughs> it's a zombie kind of practice and, in, and it's just something that um, doesn't seem to go away fully. So uh, we're yeah, hoping that we can provide the alternatives to that that would um, help uh, help people, especially, you know, I think as an adolescent literacy 
um, specialist, they just, uh, teachers need alternative, um, do you have any off the top of your head, the alternatives that maybe a science or social studies teacher who might be using the textbook in that way might want to look yeah. at or a professional development well, I, they might want to look at? I mean, I think there, there are a number, I, and it, it, it comes down to what they're trying to really do. Mm-hmm. I think in a lot of times they're trying to get through a chapter. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily trying to improve the student's ability to mm-hmm. read that text. They're, they're really just trying to, that's how they're presenting the information. Mm-hmm. They could use a lecture. They could show a film. They could do a demonstration. Mm-hmm. But instead, uh, we're going to work through this chapter a paragraph at a time. Uh, I'll have one of you read it aloud. That's the presentation. Then I'll explain what that means to you. Yeah. And, and, and then we'll Only do the next Only if you look paragraph. confused. <laughs> yeah. Then we'll stop. And, 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 and you know, my observation of those lessons is, is, is if the teacher is knowledgeable, mm-hmm. uh, you know, their explanations are terrific. At least mm-hmm. I'm impressed with them. And I, I assume that the students are, are getting something from those explanations. But it's sort of a, you know, the... I guess the text in those cases is being used the way a lot of us use PowerPoint. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's an organizer. You yeah. don't sit, sit there and read it to your audience. Yeah. You say, oh, look, it's the next framework. thing I'm yep. supposed to talk about is oral reading. You know, one <laughs> of the problems with oral reading, <laughs> boom. And so the teacher is really just trying to get through the text. And I would really argue uh, that the uh, teacher should be, in, in a case like that, uh, really should be uh, getting the kids uh, to to do that work silently, mm-hmm. uh, that they need to learn to read, in the, especially in those upper grades, they need to learn to read a uh, a science book or a social studies book uh, in a uh, uh, you know it silently you know trying to get meaning and and so what they very well might want to do is is literally have start out it's the most limited amount of text you can start out with the title. Or start mm-hmm. out with the first sentence. Just get them to read the first sentence mm-hmm, silently mm-hmm. and ask some questions about it. Get them talking about it. Uh, it you know, if you have to add explanation because you didn't think they got it, that's fine. Or you can have them read it a second time if, mm-hmm. if necessary. Yep. When they get good, when, when the students are seem to be able to read a sentence at a time like that and, and get the meaning of it and, and be able to participate, then, you know, kick it up. Make it two or make it the paragraph. Mm-hmm. And, you know, stretch them out, get to, you know, the students to where they can actually, you know, read that, that kind of text. And of course, if there are particular problems with it, if, uh, gee, you know, that there's a scientific definition there of a particular word, but the students didn't understand the definition. Now you have something to teach them. Uh, certainly the content is important. Making sure they come away with that definition matters. That's not nothing. But I would also put my attention in a case like that on how do you read a scientific definition and what kind of information should you be looking for there? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what do they typically include? Yep. And, and you can and even start... work in some principles of disciplinary literacy too, you know, uh, if, if you have the, um, the ability to do so. Yes. Everything I'm shaking my head furiously. <laughs> One thing I, I had to teach um, world history and use a textbook and I was a young teacher and you, you, you again, you know, you're covering your, your, your um, content, even though I love the content, but you know, trying to find the tricks to get them to actually read. You're absolutely right. It, it, even in seventh grade, you have to start off very small and, you know, they hit a word of vocab, a vocabulary word that might be unfamiliar and got to anticipate them and kind of prep them for it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So, um, hopefully we can spread the awareness more <laughs> that around Robin, the Robin must fly away. Okay. 
Um, and I'm sure you've been asked about it a million times. So thank you for uh, giving us that uh, elaboration on there. But you were also so uh, so kind to um, provide us with eight uh, practices that you see or, or, or just things that you would like to talk about when it comes to improving literacy instruction or, or practices that continue to um, stand in our way uh, of uh, providing quality or, or improved literacy instruction. So I appreciate you providing those and um, to stay with our eight with eight kind of themes. So are you ready? I will read them to you and then you can elaborate on them as much or as little as you want. Does that work for you? Sounds great. Awesome. Okay. So this is the problematic practice. Planning reading instruction by activity instead of the goal. Yeah, this is, is such a common one. And there are, there are people who write books and do presentations for school districts and really on how to organize your your instructional day around your activities. And, and it's exactly the wrong direction to go. It, it, it's, uh, I, I remember back in the, it must have been in the 1980s, uh, there were a number of studies going on at that time on teaching quality, you know, and what it meant to, to actually teach well. And studies were finding that teachers uh, had trouble staying focused on their goals. Uh, you know, classroom life is, is hectic and demanding and it gets, it's much more, you know, easy to, to lay out a, a scheme where, oh, I want everybody to read a little bit on their own and I want to read to them and I want everybody to do a little bit of writing. You know, it, it's all the kinds of, oh, we're going to have some time at the phonics table. So that's all terrific, but you got to remember that you're trying to teach some pretty specific yep. things. And if you lose sight of that, good things don't happen. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading that study at, at the time and thinking, man, I, you know, I can't believe we're so dumb. Why, you know, why <laughs> do we teachers do that? <laughs> you know, I, I was embarrassed. That, you know, that, but since then, I've learned a few things. I, one of the things I've learned is that, in fact, there are studies like that in a number of fields and in really demanding uh, jobs. Uh, that kind of mm -hmm. routinization around activities rather than goals is really common. Lawyers do it, doctors do it, mm -hmm. but it has bad outcomes everywhere. Every time, yep, every time. Yeah, that's that's amazing, and it's and it's interesting too the to create that goal and and circle and then reflect back on it, like that building in the time to actually think about how you did. That's the part too that as a, that I think that teachers we we don't have time to kind of sit back and think, you know. Did we meet the goal and working that into your day, that time? Your second uh, practice that you continue to see is assuming prior, well, this kind of flows from number one, assuming priority learning has to happen in the morning instead of preserving instructional flexibility. What do you have to say about that one? Yeah, you know, there's probably no more widely held myth in, in education these days than that kids learn better in the morning than in the afternoon. Uh, and I think it leads us to make some mistakes. Um, there are a ton of studies on this, and uh, most of them don't find any advantage. And, and then if you look at the ones that do find an advantage one way or another, they pretty much balance each other out. Mm -hmm. And people try to make it more and more complicated that it has something to do with the kids' circadian rhythms or <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> different measures that you'd have to use. And it really comes down to, 
people are really able to learn throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I do think that there might be individuals who are more awake and, and, and with it uh, first thing in the morning. And there are other folks who it takes them a, a, a bit more time to, to sharpen up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they balance out, uh, you know, there are probably as many of one as there are the other. Uh, and, and so what we've done is, is we tend to argue that reading needs to be taught first thing in the morning. Mm-hmm. And that's not a problem. I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with teaching reading first thing in the morning unless you're going to try to do uh, some kind of reading intervention to help the kids who are lagging. Uh, or if you're going to do an RTI program or a multi-tiered support program, uh, because uh, all of a sudden you can figure out very quickly, well, see, if school starts at 8 o'clock and I have to teach reading from 8 o'clock to 9.30, uh, that means one of two things happens. Either we can't use those intervention classes during that hour and a half or two hours every morning because, you know, you don't want to pull kids out of reading class uh, for extra reading instruction. Uh, or uh, that's exactly what happens. We pull kids out of the classes. I, I know the federal government did a study a couple of years ago, a few years ago, where they, they looked at RTI programs, and they found that roughly half of them were pulling kids out of reading to get extra reading. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, you know, we're going to really reduce happens. your reading instruction mm-hmm. to try to get you some more reading instruction. Yes. Um, so what I would really argue is that, uh, you know, in, in a real school situation where you have those kinds of resources that you want to deploy intelligently, you'd be much better off uh, saying something like, you know, all the even-numbered rooms are going to teach reading in the morning and all the odd ones in the afternoon or the upstairs rooms or the downstairs rooms, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it can be arbitrary. But what it would do is it'll free the, the uh, uh, kids' schedule up so that if they need extra reading help, they can actually get extra reading help and not mm-hmm. replacement reading help, which doesn't work as well. Right. I think that's uh, a, a great a thought, yes. Tier one is so important, they can't miss it. The, the third one is ignoring the rationales between oral and silent reading. So if you want to explain the rationales quickly and why they shouldn't be ignored. Sure. You know, a lot of the arguments against things like round robin sound to teachers like an argument against oral reading. Mm -hmm. And so they they get stuck. They, you know, it's either I'm not supposed to listen to the kids read, so I don't know how well they're doing, or uh, I I blow off. They're they're telling me not to do things like round robin, but I'm going to do them anyway, because how else am I going to know what's going on? And I, you know, I I don't know that the kids are even reading the text if I, if I only have them read it silently. So we get ourselves into a spot. And I I think the the way out of it is to, to be very focused on what is it that we're trying to accomplish with oral reading and with silent reading. Uh, With oral reading, if we're talking beginning readers like kindergarten and first grade, uh, it seems to be impossible for young children to read silently. They can't do that till they get to a, you know, a point, maybe like a, you know, mid first grade to high first grade level. And, and so, I, I, you know, those kids have to read loud, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, and yeah, it'll probably look like round robin reading because the teacher's going to have to, you know, listen to some of the kids read. So that's going to have to happen. Uh, other times it's, it's for diagnosis. You, you want to hear the kids read so you can tell how well they can handle a particular text. 
another uh, very real use of oral reading is to do things like build oral reading fluency. You want kids to be able to read text with uh, accuracy and automaticity and, and with the sound of language, it should be prosodic. Uh, and, and so essentially, what I would argue for is instead of that, you know, I call on one student to read, and then I call on another student to read, and in, in the course of a 30-minute lesson, you know, I've, I've listened to 10 kids each read for a minute, you know, that kind of mm-hmm. crazy stuff. Uh, you know, you'd be much better off doing things like paired reading mm-hmm. uh, with the teacher involved in that. And so, you know, if you have 30 kids in the class, and there might be 15 pairs of kids, you know, taking turns reading to each other, which increases the sheer amount of reading that they're doing. Mm-hmm. With the teacher going around among the groups and making sure that, you know, kids are reading it fluently and getting them to reread it if they're not. And sometimes mo- intervening with a model, you know, reading it them so they can hear what it should sound like and then having them try it and so on. And and that seems to help uh, uh, with older kids, uh, both building up comprehension and also, uh, you know, improving uh, their, uh, even their, some of their word reading skills. That's great. And the, that, that strategy can happen all the way up into uh, the upper grades too, to a we certain right extent. Through too. Yep. We, we do it right through high school. We yep. do that with 12th graders. Okay. If, if, uh, they, they have fluency needs. Wonderful. This next one is teaching kids to comprehend texts that are already, they, that they already can comprehend. Yeah, this is, this is one that I think uh, it probably does more to lower our reading levels and to, to, to keep them from going up than anything. Uh, we've been telling teachers, uh, geez, now uh, for about 70, 80 years, Uh, that children have to be working in texts of a certain level of difficulty if they're going to learn. And the levels of difficulty that we've set, that that instructional level that we claim, has traditionally been 95 to 98% accuracy, Mm -hmm. which would mean that if the youngster's reading a passage, they have 100 words, they'd make no more than five oral reading errors, miscalling words and so on. And the comprehension that would be considered instructional is 75 to 89 percent. In other words, the student wouldn't have total comprehension, but pretty high comprehension of the text. And, and the idea was we would teach the kids to read with those texts that, frankly, the kids can already read pretty well. Mm-hmm. When we look at the research, what we find is that, in fact, kids learn more when they're working with text that has, poses more problems for them. There's actually something to learn in those texts. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if a student can read a text with 95% accuracy and say 80% comprehension on their own, what do you think you're going to add by having them spend all of this time reading texts mm-hmm. that easy? Mm-hmm. And, and, and so what research is saying is kids really need to be, uh, when they're working with the guidance of a teacher, uh, it, it's more like a frustration level uh, where they, they, on the first attempt reading by themselves, they're not going to do it very well. Yes, I, I, I love it. So number five, keeping kids, uh, keeping reading and writing apart. Yeah. Uh, this is I actually, see this a lot. I still see this <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it, it's really what got me into research in the first place. I spent a big part of my career looking at reading-writing relationships. And, and, and there are different ways of putting reading and writing together. And we tend, 
uh, either to, to isolate them, to teach them separately, which is not very efficient or effective, uh, or we we use you know when we do put them together, we we oh there's one way to do it, and, and and we only do that one way. When you look at the research, there are really three different ways that reading and writing can be uh, taught together effectively. One of those is to recognize that the the content and the language and and uh, even a, a good deal of the way we process the information uh, really overlap uh, the, the the same things. I mean, if you think about it, uh, when it comes to decoding or encoding, it, you know, it's the same letters, it's the same mm-hmm. sounds, mm-hmm. it's the spell, same you know spelling patterns matched up with pronunciation that you use both on the reading side and the the, the writing side. Yeah, of the it's a twofer. <laughs> But it's also true with vocabulary. It's also mm-hmm. true with grammar. That's also true, true with text structure. That's also true with the content of, of whatever it is you're reading about and, and writing about, the knowledge that a reader or writer needs to have to, to make sense of text or to create text. And so I would argue that whenever you are teaching a literacy skill, and it doesn't matter if we're talking those, those decoding skills or some of those higher order comprehension skills we should be trying to deal with that from both sides awesome and i in just i often see you know uh, schools with literacy blocks but the reading and the writing is still uh disconnected within the block number six is testing kids when we don't want or need the information yeah you know there's so much testing going on and and the idea of it is a good one the, the basic idea is if we test kids uh, with some frequency, we'll know how they're doing. We'll be able to monitor their success. If they're not succeeding, we can reteach or get kids extra help. And boy, that's so smart, right? Mm-hmm. That's so yes. diagnostic and targeted. But what it's gotten into is, is we just test like crazy. Uh, sometimes we test too much. And so you look and, uh, you know, you, you look at these tests and say, well, how in uh, a fast do kids grow in a particular skill? So take fluency. And I'll, I'll take one where it's easy to do the numbers. Uh, you know, second graders. If you look at the, the norms on second graders, they from the beginning of the year to the end of the year, 36-week uh, school uh, year, kids learn that their, their words correct per minute improves about 36 words. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it's about a word a week. That's pretty, yes, uh, that's amazing. I'm seeing it now. I have a first graders, two twins, and it's amazing the growth that they're that they're getting. Um, number seven, focus mainly on, uh, or only on decoding interventions. Yeah, you know, it is such a good idea to have interventions in school, classroom interventions, and pull-out interventions, and after-school interventions, and so on where kids can get extra help uh, with what they, they need to learn so that we can keep their progress going, uh, hopefully keep kids up to grade level or catch them up to grade level. Um, and, and if you look at the research on, on primary grades, you're going to find that a very large percentage of kids who have reading problems tend to have decoding problems. So it, it makes great sense mm-hmm. that a, a school district would invest in uh, some kind of decoding interventions that maybe teach phonemic awareness and phonics and perhaps you know oral reading fluency, and that's great. And 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 I, you know, I'm a big supporter of those, and and uh, you know hope that schools will continue to do that. 
But if you look at things like the the reading row for the you know the uh, uh, simple view of reading or or any of the more complicated views, they all include the the fact that kids have to develop both decoding skills and language skills or reading comprehension skills, both those those foundational abilities and those higher order abilities, um, and and you know the particular kinds of kids, like for example English learners. Are, are more likely to be struggling with the English language mm-hmm. than they are with decoding. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a number of kids who, uh, either because their problem is more with on the language end than on decoding, who need other kinds of interventions mm-hmm. than decoding ones. Or frankly, maybe you've been really successful with your decoding interventions and you've gotten these kids up to a sufficient level of decoding ability and quite often, uh, according to NICHD, a very substantial number of those kids often then need some kind of oral language support or, you know, again, reading comprehension kinds of things, dealing with written language. Uh, and and I, I look, a lot of school systems don't have any kinds of supports for those kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. like, we have our, and, and so what happens is, if, let's say you're a second uh, grade English learner. Uh, your decoding might be fine, but you're lagging so much in reading, you're getting low reading scores that they essentially send you to the decoding intervention because mm-hmm. they don't have any other place to mm-hmm. put you. It yeah. doesn't help. <laughs> yeah, and meanwhile, you're 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 speaking two languages, you know, and we need to play to their strengths. And I, I had many um, English learners uh, as a teacher, and it was always very tricky, but it was mainly, you know, getting them to engage in with the text themselves and build their confidence I, I found was uh was huge especially in the seventh grade all right we're at our our eighth um uh practice and it is replacing instruction with independent reading <laughs> yeah um this one will make a lot of people angry but <laughs> but you know when we look at the research on having kids uh you know read on their own uh, you know, self-selection, uh, uh, very little monitoring. Uh, you know, perhaps the teacher talks to the kids for a minute or two every, you know, couple days or something like that. Uh, versus, you know, reading texts uh, as a group or as a class. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with teacher supervision and, and discussion, guided discussion, and teacher questions and assignments linked to text and so on. And what you find is a pretty substantial difference in how much kids learn from the two experiences. Mm. Reading on your own, yes, indeed, you can learn stuff. There's mm-hmm. no question, kids, if you see certain words often enough, you'll start to figure out what they mean. Uh, reading practice, you know, must be good. Practice is a good idea for most things, I think most people would agree. But the reason for school is we want to accelerate kids' learning. And, and so I would really, there's there's always a certain amount of di- downtime in a school day. Nobody's perfect at planning or organizing their mm-hmm. days. I guess that. But uh, And so making sure everybody has a book available to read when they're <laughs> got mm-hmm. nothing else that they have to do at the moment, that, that that's absolutely fine. But doing things like, well, you know, we have a 90-minute reading block or a two-hour reading block, mm-hmm. and I have the kids reading on their own for 30 minutes mm-hmm. of that. Uh, I think is a huge mistake. Uh, you know, get, encourage those boys and girls to make reading part of their lives rather than trying to make it part of yours. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, it, like it's, uh, the, the argument is always, well, these are, you know, 
children from high poverty neighborhoods and they won't read at home. Try it. Yes, Try they it. will. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you to feel confident yeah. in reading, they will read. Yes. Well, what yeah. do you say about like what you're saying that um, independent reading doesn't uh, show results? But what about the the kids who go on and take those tests uh, that are provided by the companies? Um, I'm not going to name any that uh, will kind of check that the kid actually read it. Um, what do you say? You know, I'm trying to think of people who who use these kind of things. What What do you say about yeah. that? What What evidence that provides instead of evidence of actually, you know, reading improvement. Yeah, it, you know, it, it's a very thin uh, response to text that, you know, answer 10 short answer questions mm-hmm. that are often about trivia, you know, what did Tom Sawyer have for breakfast, you know, kind of thing. Uh, not trying to get mm-hmm. at the meaning of the text, uh, more of a check, did they actually read this? Uh, you know, the, the benefits of those discussions and those, mm-hmm. you know, the writing and so on, is you're actually getting kids to think more deeply about the text and to build up their knowledge and, and, and you know, that kind of thing. Uh, whereas those other things are more just sort of a, a check to see, did he do it? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think you're in the, essentially what we're, we're doing is putting the emphasis on how could we get you to be really superficial readers mm-hmm. instead of thoughtful, deep thinking, you know, critical thinking uh, readers. And I think it's that, the latter that we actually need in our mm-hmm. society. Wow. Well, we've reached the end. Thank you so much for your time. This has been amazing. This has been an honor to speak to you, of course. Um, and is there anything you would like to let our listeners know about? Do you have any upcoming appearances or conferences or anything you would like them to check out? I don't, but I certainly would hope that they will uh, you know, monitor my website. I know a lot of people subscribe to my blog or follow my blog on social media, and that's fine. But I'd also point out to them that there are the, my website is really a personal website. There's no advertising there. There's no political stuff no, there. There's, there's no bad. I've noticed it's all, I mean, <laughs> you just put everything that you do up there and it's available for download. And yep. I've used it all the time when I'm pr- putting together presentations and always reference it and use it. So I really thank you for your service um, because it's, it's, it's a wealth of information. A lot of links to other sites and so on. So it really, when they're looking for things on, on teaching reading, it really is an important place to go to, I hope. <laughs> Absolutely. And we will link all of that, and I'll pull out um, some of the uh, other, maybe the, some of the studies you talked about or, or some other places they can read if they want to go deeper into uh, some of the things that you talked about. But I cannot thank you enough for taking this time uh, to speak to us. Thanks so much, Sarah. I- you did a nice job of it. <laughs> this is only the second one I've done. I interviewed Judy Willis last week, who's like an idol of mine too. So this is just the second time. And it's like, they got the, the, the person, we really do reference you all the time. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I hope I don't mess it up. So thank you, you so much. You didn't mess it up. All you right. did well. <laughs> Have a great weekend. You too. Good all luck. Right. Bye-bye. And that's it for another episode of 8 with 8. Thank you so much to Dr. Shanahan for that deep dive into literacy instruction. I love the way he made connections to the research and to some very real examples from classroom practice. He helps us see that some of our educational routines are really just habits that may not always align to our true goals for student learning. By really thinking about what we are trying to achieve with our students, we can design learning experiences that help them get where they need to go. So where do we go from here? How about we go outside? It's time for recess. 
Wait, not a recess from this podcast. We're just getting started with our season. Rather, we're going to talk about the value of recess and playtime next week. And specifically, the practice of keeping kids in from recess and playtime as a consequence for challenging behavior. From a developmental perspective, we might be doing more harm than good. Join us next week as we take a hard look at yet another common but possibly misguided educational practice. See you soon.